This is the Beautiful Writers Podcast, and you've just landed on part two of our best of episode. I'm Linda Sievertson, and about nine months ago, I put together our very first best of compilation, thinking that I would soon create part two, where I could get to many of the amazing guests and snippets I didn't have time for in part one. (laughs) And then Tom Hanks happened, and Maria Shriver, and Van Jones, and Gabby Bernstein, and Dean Koontz, and more. I only do this show, you guys, once a month. That doesn't sound like much, right? In fact, as far as I can tell, all of the other literature podcasts in the top 100 on iTunes, they're all weekly shows. So I don't know if I'm just slow or if I radically over-prepare, but I can promise you I can't do this show any faster. Not to mention, I just launched a course on time debt called Bending Time in the Age of Distraction, and I've learned it's way easier to get into flow where magic lives when you are not pushing your body and brain to their physical limits. That said, whenever I'm tempted to think it's just once a month, Linda, I take heart in the concept that people tend to overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in 10 years. That's comforting, right? Because these growing pages of transcripts from the show can feel sometimes like, I don't know, like I'm at the post office where the mail never stops arriving. I look at my transcript folder with its hundreds of pages of wisdom from these celebrity writers and I think, dang, I have never been so relieved to be writing a book. Because at least with the beautiful writer's book, there will be plenty of room to include everyone. I can already see it's going to have to be a series, though, since every month there's a new show. In that vein, I've decided this morning that very soon I'm going to go dark and lock myself up in a hotel room for a few weeks to get her done because otherwise, I don't know what the Word doc or font equivalent for going postal is, but I don't want to find out. Okay, enough apologizing for not being able to include everyone I've ever interviewed here for now. Let's get to some of my favorite snippets from the past nine months and a few timeless oldies going back a few years. You'll hear topics we all care about from these best-selling authors on coaxing the muse, finding time to write, time, there's that word again, being activists, both on the page and on the street, how to unflinchingly believe in yourself, and so much more, and lots of funny stuff too. Because we gotta keep this light, y'all. Creativity is about having fun. On that note, I'm going to open with Tom Hanks being a lovable goofball with Danielle Laporte and me, and then talk show host, best-selling author, and Alzheimer's advocate, Lisa Gibbons, and I are going to share a laugh with the beautiful Maria Shriver. I've been thinking is Maria's latest number one New York Times bestseller, and I freaking love how Lisa stumps Maria here with perhaps our funniest question yet. Welcome. Are you going to put that groovy music of consequence underneath, like, our conversation? You know? Not underneath our conversation, but at the beginning, I do an intro where I rave okay. about your book and all of that, and there will be groovy music oh, there. Okay, all right. That's, the fabulous. Yeah. That's good. Will you have moments of silence when I'm just breathing? You know, that kind of, I'm thinking of what the answer is, or I'm pausing in between answers, and you get this along with it. Yes. Well, you know, we're sitting actually, down, we're actually, sitting down we're to write a story. Pause. Yeah. No, but I would appreciate, Tom, if you're going to have pauses, could you make some typing noises? Oh, I, I mean, hold on one second. And then I think we should turn Tom's typing into a ringtone, and we could sell it. My, and we'll I, have my, the process. I have my Smith Corona Super. Is How would this be? 
Is that all right? <laughs> Let me put a piece of paper in here so I don't screw up the platen here. Let me make that happen. Oh, my God, that's perfect. Danielle had an idea about your typing noises, so run it by him, yeah. Danielle. Well, I think we should turn it into a ringtone afterwards. It's like Tom's, Tom's typing ringtone. Yeah. It'd be that. inspiring writers across the nation. Yeah. I would, this is, uh, you know what, it's a soothing sound. It, it actually does. It is a kind of like inspiring. My crack staff down at the office tell me that they enjoy it. Yeah. When I they hear from my noise. distant room, they start hearing. Ah! But did you just type nonsense or did you actually uh, did I typed, you have like an inner policy that you No, I had a, I typed H H F H space J J H T G G. But here, let me try to type this something. I Can you hear that? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yes. It's beautiful. Okay. I'm on a podcast. That's <laughs> <laughs> Would you cut your hair or cut out coffee? <laughs> that is tough a question as I've ever had. That's cruel. Both of which I'm very dependent on. I don't know. I That's can't cruel. do it. That's the question. I, I have never been stumped by a question until this moment. How about That's you, Lisa? That one's really cruel, isn't it? Oh, I would yeah, cut my hair. hair. I would cut my hair, but I don't have no. Maria's hair, so I couldn't answer for Maria's hair. <laughs> well, once again, we'd have to say how short. Like, yeah, true. Yes, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. wouldn't need a qualifier, wouldn't you? <laughs> yes, I need a qualifier all the time. Now I want to talk with a few of our interviewees about how they got started. We're going to begin with Gabby Bernstein, who is the number one New York Times bestselling author of both The Universe Has Your Back and most recently Judgment Detox. Gabby and I talked extensively on her publishing career and how many of her bestsellers feel sort of miraculous for a girl who grew up not feeling in any way smart. Okay, I may be the first person you interview to say that I never identified as a writer <laughs> until I had to be a writer. How about that? Are you ready for that? <laughs> I love it. I love, and and you're one of the most successful, which is awesomely funny. Like the things that we really didn't want to do, God was like, you got to do it, girl. So yeah. I had a whole story. One of the things I write about in this new book a lot is the belief systems that hold us back. And a big one I had was a story that I'm not smart enough. And when I was in sixth grade, some kid told me I was stupid, which, of course, changed the trajectory of my life and really, really was a traumatic event for me, ultimately. And it made me believe that, which led me on the path of really excelling in the arts. And I went on to get a BFA in theater and just totally turned my back on academia and just did not identify myself as someone that was going to thrive in that way. My literary education ended in eighth grade. Okay. That was it. Like I could barely string a sentence together, had the worst grammar, couldn't spell. Let's just, let me tell you all of the truth here. And to make a really long story short, I hit a big bottom. I got really hooked into a lot of addictive patterns. I was like, I could two choices. I'm going to go down that road. I'm going to die or I'm going to do something much different. But I got myself sober at 25 years old and in my sober recovery got very spiritual. I started to speak publicly about what I was going through. So being a speaker was so natural to me. It was like, this was what I was born to do. I was meant to get on the stage. I was meant to speak. This was my art. I felt extremely confident in speaking. And my speaking career over a few years really just kind of blew up. Hundreds of women started coming out 
And every time I'd give a talk, they'd all look at me being like, well, what do I do next? You know, I want to take it home with me. I don't want to stop. I can't wait till next month's lecture. And every month after month, I kept doing these talks and they kept saying, we need a book. We need a book. We need a book. And I was like, I will do it. I will write that book. And I just, because I had my teachers are Marianne Williams and Dr. Wayne Dyer, Deepak Chopra. These are the books that were stacked up on my bedside table. And I knew that that was the path that I was on. I knew that that was what I was being called to do. And with that was the requirement to write and publish books. And so I was like, okay, I can sell a book. I knew I could sell a book. And then I'm like, holy shit, I don't know how to write a book. It was truly the law of attraction. I just believed. My mantra is this Joan of Arc quote, I am not afraid I was born to do this. So I know that this is the work I'm here to do. There's nothing, I'm unstoppable when it comes to my career because this is what I'm being. I chose this path and this is what I'm meant to do. And I am taking good orderly direction. And being in that type of alignment, I'm not in that alignment in every corner of my life. But in my career, I am in that alignment. I mean, anything's possible. So it worked. Next, the beloved host of his own show on CNN, The Van Jones Show. Van was on while on tour for his latest bestseller, Beyond the Messy Truth. My guest co-host that day, again, was Glennon Doyle. Love having her on. She's the New York Times bestselling author of Carry On Warrior and the number one memoir, Love Warrior, an Oprah book club pick. The three of us talked about what it takes to hone our talent and how to wrangle this thing called book writing. It was in the middle of still the George Bush hangover yeah. and you know, before Obama came in. And if I could talk to 100 people, man, I would fly across the country to do that. So you have to go through that apprenticeship, mm-hmm. that period where it's just you and your bus ticket or however, you, know, you mm-hmm. and your Airbnb and your belief. And it's where you hone the argument. Yeah. And it's where you eventually realize what works, what doesn't work, what people understand, what they don't understand. Mm-hmm. I think if you can get out there, especially if you're doing nonfiction, if you can get out there and really talk to people, and after you give your talk, stick around, ask people, what struck you about the thing? What made sense to you? What do you wish I'd said more? What do you wish I'd said less of? Let people develop you as a communicator in general. Then when you turn to the page, you've already got a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. That is ready to go. Glennon, you've probably found exactly the same thing in all your speaking gigs <clears throat> and with your blog, right? All that audience and readership interaction. Yeah. I think that the rookie mistakes that I made were thinking that I could write a book. Like, nobody can write a book. You just have to sit down. And writing a book is... I remember Cheryl Strait telling me, well, what writing a book feels like is that you can't write a book. It's impossible. All the time, all the days. People say to me, how do I become a writer? And sometimes I think what they mean is, how do I get published? But a writer is just somebody who writes every day. Yeah. So the way you become a writer is you just make sure your butt is in a chair for however many hours you've decided a day and that your fingers are moving. And um, <laughs> and then you just don't get on the Internet. That's really the only right? thing that will take you out. You have to just turn the cell phone off. I don't yeah. mean put it away or you have to turn it off because if you're like me, you've already hit all the wrong buttons at some point earlier. So every time something happens in the world, it's going to beep or flash or it's going to send you some little alert. And and I don't know how to unpush those buttons. So even when you're working really hard, your brain is wired. We're these little lab rats and we're proving some huge 
corporation correct that we just cannot <laughs> resist these devices. Yeah. So you literally have to cut the phone off yeah. and put it in a drawer and get a watch. Remember those things, watches. <laughs> and, um, give yourself a couple hours. And then I guess people used to run outside to smoke a cigarette. Now you have to run outside to check your phone. But give yourself a couple hours <laughs> without that. Yeah, I have to tell myself the answer, if it's writing time, the answer is not on Twitter and it's not in my pantry. If I can avoid Twitter and the pantry, <laughs> yeah. I will get some work done. Legendary screenwriting coach of hundreds of Emmy and Oscar winning shows and films, Robert McKee, came back on the show with me to interview one of the most successful novelists of all time. Dean Koontz has sold over a half a billion books in 38 languages and shared with us how the telltale signs of his prolific career were there all along. I was writing little stories on tablet paper when I was eight years old and drawing covers for them and stapling them down one side, covering the staples with electrician's tape so nobody would hurt their fingers and peddling them to relatives for a nickel. Uh, my, so I knew at eight I was publisher, writer, editor, and agent. And it's strange to me all these years later that drive was there for this very thing at such a young age. Yeah, that's the same. Yeah. I did the same thing, only I didn't do the tape and I didn't have the balls to sell them. So what's it like for one of the biggest movie stars in the world to hold his first book? Danielle and I asked Tom Hanks, the new novelist, about how those first minutes with his book baby, Uncommon Truth, felt. And then Glennon Doyle and I hear from Van Jones about how very wrong publishing executives were to believe that no one wanted to hear from a black man on green issues. No one is shouting. It's a very personal thing. You just sit there and you hold the book and you look at it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you think, has this been created out of thin air? Uh, has it been beamed to me? Is it a collection of, I think, look at all the molecules that went into this hardcover and these pages. I must say that when I saw it, I, I, you see the advanced reader's copy, which was hilarious because somebody said, oh, that's good. No, we'll send you a box of arcs. And I said, excuse me, what is a, bo what is a box of arcs? Arcs. Oh, I'm sorry. Advanced reader's copies. And yeah. those are kind of nice things, but, you know, they don't have the missing Not the real deal. It's not the real deal. But when you get that hardcover, and the first one I actually received was the uh, version that is in the U.K., and I did not know that every country has a different version yeah. of what it is. It's, yeah. I didn't realize it was that kind of competitive atmosphere. I did not realize that each one of those covers is a copyrighted creation that you just cannot say, well, let's put the cover on the book on some T-shirts and sell it. No, you can't do that. You have to, there's like royalties involved. I didn't know yeah. this stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah stuff that you learn. But the celebration of it was extremely quiet. Yeah. And it was all by myself. And I probably, mm -hmm. look, I'm not saying time didn't stand still. It did. I might have just been standing in my office uh, over my desk. Was I there for two and a half hours just staring down at this thing in my hands, or was it was it 2.2 seconds? I don't know. Either one would have made sense to me. I think it's because it's yours. It's a beautiful baby, you know, and you just you hold it in your arms, and, uh, and you think, look at the spine on this kid. Look at the <laughs> look at look at the beautiful lettering. 
I feel like, Van, one of the things that I love so much about you and your work and have forever is that it just seems like right now in this time, everybody's feeling angry and threatened. And so most of us just go into our primal instincts, right? This like fight or flight reaction. And it just feels like there's always this third way that every leader I'm looking for right now is not in fight or flight. They're in this third way that is like this invite, right? So it's like not people that are just screaming, but like pointing to something better, pointing to a better story to invite people into. So you're doing that, and I'm really grateful. Van, I have been a massive fan as well, all the way back since 2008 when you released The Green Collar Economy. My son Tosh and I had released an environmental book for teens at the very same time, and it was called Generation Green. Soon after, Tosh was asked to speak in front of, it was like 5,000 teens at the LA Convention Center for the Environmental Youth Conference. And he spoke about the types of green jobs that teens could look forward to pursuing, and some of which, a lot of which, he learned about through your amazing book. So you've had a real impact on my family. Oh, I appreciate that. You know, it's so funny. That book, nobody wanted to publish that book. Uh, this is, so in, in uh, 2007, right. I was working in Oakland, California. I was trying to get low-income urban youth jobs putting up solar panels. So kind of very, very right. simple project called Oakland Green Jobs Corps. Right. At the time, though, that was a really radical idea and a new idea. And Brilliant. we had some success getting, well, thank you. And we got uh, Nancy Pelosi to push for legislation. We got George W. Bush to sign a bill mm-hmm. called the Green Jobs Act to spread versions of my program across the country. And I wanted to write a book about it. And nobody wanted to publish the book. And their view was, and that, that the way that publishing industry works, there's no model for yeah. this book. Mm-hmm. Black people don't read green books. White people don't read black books. You've got a black environmentalist. Nobody's going to read the guy's book. This was the universal conclusion of the entire... I went to every major publisher. All of them turned me down. But it, luckily, there was a young editor at Harper SS, which is now called Harper One. Yeah. There was a young editor mm-hmm. named Gideon Wild. He's like runs the place now. Ten years ago. He was a new guy. He was a young guy. And he had heard me speak. And thought well of my potential. And he said, you guys are crazy. You'll have a huge audience. Sure enough, we got the book done. It debuted on the New York Times bestseller list. Yep. It's in a, six languages. It's in 100 U.S. universities last year. But if you're a writer and you are trying to say something truly new, mm-hmm. you have got to find in yourself that extra strength, that extra lap or two or three. Somebody will find that connection with you, but it takes an extra kind of belief and commitment in what you have to say. I want to switch gears now to talk about writing schedules, which vary as wildly from person to person as you can imagine. We'll start with Gretchen Rubin, author of the blockbuster New York Times bestsellers, The Four Tendencies, Better Than Before, and The Happiness Project. Danielle and I wanted to know how this devoted wife and mother of two is renowned for her organizational skills on social media, with having a blog, pumping out books, and co-hosting her top-rated weekly podcast. How does she really sustain this kind of creative output in the day-to-day? 
I get up at 6 a.m. and I do an hour, and like against the conventional wisdom, which is that, especially for a morning person like me, your morning is your most creative and energetic time. I cannot settle down to do anything until I've gone through my email and my social media. So I spend an hour before <laughs> my family wakes up answering email and going through all my social media. You know, so I do that for an hour. Then I get up, get my family up, make breakfast, take my daughter to school. We just walk to school, then come back. And then I'll either go to the gym or come back. And if I'm doing original writing, I try to figure out like three hours where I can do original writing sometime in the day. And it depends because if I'm having lunch with someone or I have a meeting or I have a phone call, it kind of has to be at a different time of the day. When I'm in my home office, I have three monitors and I'm totally connected. And when I'm trying to do original writing, I often will go to this little library that's just a block from my apartment and work there because there I never connect to the Internet. And so it's much easier for me to stay very focused on what I'm writing. And then throughout the day, usually I have a blog post to write. And then, you know, if I'm having to plan a talk or I'm doing, you know, oh, and I have a podcast with my sister called Happier with Gretchen Rubin, which has been tremendously fun. But that's been another thing that has to be worked into the day. Like, what are we going to do? You know, when are we going to talk about, when are we going to record it? That's a whole other thing that has to be fit in. And all those pieces sort of float around. Danielle and I often have deadlines. All Mm -hmm. of our clients have deadlines. Everyone in Beautiful Writers Group has deadlines, self-imposed or, you know, from an editor or from a publisher. So what are the key habits one Mm. needs for nailing writing deadlines? So one of the things about deadlines that I noticed when I started really looking at this, because managing deadlines and sort of the opposite, managing procrastination, are certainly huge (laughs) issues that come up with habits. No surprise. So here's one thing about deadlines, is that there are marathoners and sprinters. And I think a lot of times people sort of try to deny their nature. So a marathoner, and I'm a marathoner myself, is somebody who likes to start well in advance and have plenty of time, work steadily, and often they don't even like to be up against the deadline. So maybe they want to have a little bit of margin at the end, but they like to do a little bit over time. And they feel like that's what ignites their creativity, that's how they get ideas, is ruminating it over time, and that's how they work steadily. Sprinters, by contrast, are people who really prefer to work up against the deadline. They like the adrenaline of the deadline. They feel like that's when their ideas come together, that's what ignites their creativity, that's when they're most productive. And if they start too early, they can kind of burn out or lose interest, or they feel like they're just really inefficient, that they don't use their time wisely because they're like, wow, it's not due for two weeks. So they kind of, you know, (laughs) mess around and sort of fitfully do it, but then they really only start truly working on it right up against the deadline. So it's like, well, why should I do all this stuff in advance? Both Maria Shriver and Rob Bell have very full family lives and deadline schedules. Listen up as Maria shares a boundary she makes to secure her writing time. And then Rob, who is the author of 10 books, most recently, What is the Bible?, as he tells my uncle Chuck Saylor, also a New York Times bestselling author, why it's okay to feel overwhelmed by the insanity of it all. They put these essays together because a lot of these essays had news things in them that were timely to that given week, which I had to take out and rework. And I'm now writing stuff and I'm like, oh, I wish what I was writing now is in there, but <laughs> <laughs> that, that always yeah. happens. Yeah, that always happens. So I usually block it off on my calendar and then yeah, hope that nobody bothers me so I can make the time for it. I want to ask you guys about how the writing life can make you feel crazy because 
as I'm listening to you, Rob, talk, I'm thinking about my fiancé who he will leave in the morning, sometimes at 4.30, 5 in the morning, and by the time he's cleared all of his email in the morning, I'm just finishing walking the dogs. I sit down. I try to get organized. And by the time he comes home, I've wrestled this brain so hard to get these pages down and avoiding the call of the laundry and avoiding all these things that are pummeling me for attention. And he looks at me and he's like, why are you tired? Because I think non-writers don't really understand what a battle it is, like you were talking about, for your energy to get that compressed and that focused. It can be agonizing to try to be in the real world at times. Is it for you guys? Absolutely. And your mind is elsewhere. Exactly. You're trying to like, sometimes you're just trying to solve a problem. Yep. And the only way is to let your mind just turn it over and over and over, which is very different than <sighs> figuring out why the water filter is beeping. Thank you. And doesn't it make you feel like today. an asshole? It makes me feel like an <laughs> asshole sometimes. Like, I just can't join civilization because I've got my mind on this paragraph. It's like, what a jerk. You know, Right. You have to surrender the obsession with metrics and data because for many people, their work is directly tied to tangible outcomes. They work this many hours and this many clients were served, this many deals were transacted. And when you enter into this kind of territory, all you knew is you spent eight hours figuring out how the blue shoes related to the stepdad and the Toyota. Right? You're, all you know is you're trying to figure out that scene or that chapter, and it's just a totally different kind of work. That obsession of working something and reworking something, it almost feels like a mental disorder, does it not? <laughs> For all of us. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I'll be trying to come up with language to describe something. It'll just turn over and over and over. And... I will realize, oh, other people get done with work and they go home and don't even think about it. <laughs> and this is just what I do. I think now I've just made peace with it and it feels a lot less obsessive because it's just, yeah, this is the work. This is what it takes. Mm -hmm. This is what it takes. Yeah. Yeah, I, but I totally relate to that. Now we'll hear from Dean Kuntz on his Herculean schedule which will give you an idea how he's written more than nearly anyone on planet Earth and the magic and mystery behind how he allows his characters to reveal themselves. I love how, Dean, you say in your author's note of this new book, oh, I love this book, that Jane, the character Jane Hawk, is so real to you that you cannot wait to get to your desk in the mornings and that you're reluctant to stop working at the end of the day. If I remember correctly, though, you've done this with past books. You're kind of known for your 10-hour days. Isn't that right? For me, sitting here in an extended period of time, I fall more completely into the fictional world than if I'm working two or three hours in the morning and an hour or two in the afternoon. Wow. So I get up, I walk the dog, and I'm at my desk by 6.30, 7 o'clock, and I work straight through to dinner, and I usually do that six days a week. And it's one of the ways that the fictional world becomes more real to me. And especially if a character comes alive, for me, character is almost everything in fiction. If you're not swept away by the character, even the most clever story won't always work so well. And when you get a character who in the first few pages comes alive for you, 
that you're saying, where is this person coming from, which is Jane Hawk. Her attitude, her fortitude, her the way she looks at the world was so different that I became absolutely fascinated with her in three or four chapters. And yeah, I'm finishing the fourth book with her, and she's gaining depth that I never saw coming. And that is one of the greatest gifts I think a writer can get. Wow. And it's because of those hours. Partly those hours and partly that you let the character be the character. I don't outline. I don't do character profiles. But when the character comes on stage and starts to form, I kind of just do what Robert said. I get out of the character's way. And this sounds very odd to some beginning writers who say, well, you're creating the character. You can't be surprised by the character. Oh, yes, you can. This character does things that floor me. And sometimes when I'm writing a book that has comic dialogue, I'm laughing out loud as if I hear it, not as if I'm writing it. And those are the moments when you know the characters, because they're speaking like real people, because they sound and come off, and what they're doing is not wooden and planned. That's when you know the fiction is working. In this next grouping of snippets, Lisa Gibbons and I talk with Maria Shriver on how she dances with the muse. And then Danielle and I break down with Tom Hanks about how to stay creative and independent despite those irritating electronic gadgets. I used to write in longhand my first book, which was a children's book called What's Heaven. I wrote in longhand. And I find that actually... This might sound kind of weird, but I find when I write either in my notes on my phone, if I'm on the airplane or something, right. that it's almost sometimes stuff comes out of me that I didn't even know. Yeah. Yes. Yes. No, and my hand starts writing oh. things. I start writing and I look at the words and move them around as I, because I'm very kind of word. A friend of mine once said, you're a word hoarder. You're a word hoarder. <laughs> I was like, wow. But it's almost like I didn't even know I was thinking that. Like your channel. It comes out like that when I'm, not when I'm talking, but when I'm writing. That's how you know you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Mm. What? When something comes out that you didn't know? Yes, that's what I think. I think that's inspired thought happening right there. Last week, they had a day off school. They all got together to watch The Breakfast Club. And my kid came home and said, everybody in the room was on their phones for the whole movie. Wow, we can't even watch a good film without the phone. Yeah. I think it would be, I guess, odd and kind of like, oh, these kids with the rock and roll these days, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You You call that music, you know, Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin. What what kind of name for a band is Led? You kids with the rap and the hip hop and the Snoopy dogs and the and the ice cubes. What is that? That's not you don't want to come off like that. But there's a book out right now, and I don't know what the name of it is, but I was just talking with a friend of mine, and it's the concept of agency, to put a word on it, is that agency, I guess, is this individual thing that you experience that is 100% of your own creation, and the phone or the iPad or whatever it is is not that. I mean, it, it is not the same quality of daydreaming. It's a constant... I know. I, it, look, it's just this constant distraction that I think that robs you of beauty. It's not a tragedy. I mean, it just is. There's the technology, but it's going to have some meaning. And as you yourself said, how do you do it at dinner time? Is everybody going to be checking their 
Can you guys do like a ooga sound effects if I say a bad word or something like that? Oh, no, you can say as many bad words. Oh, you can say whatever the fuck you want. Oh, real? Oh, my God. I mean, if you can't just sit down and have just dinner without somebody periodically picking up their fucking phone. Uh, look, honestly, you're missing out on something. But uh, look, I'm going to conv- I'm, I'm going to let me confess to something to you right now because this is so prescient, and you can add this to uh, psychology 101 if you want to. Thanks. Just last night, and I'm not kidding you. I'm saying about 12 hours ago, less than 12, no, maybe 15 hours ago. I was on a plane, and I was going up to uh, San Francisco. The plane ride from L.A. to San Francisco was about 50 minutes. And I brought a book. I was traveling light because I was going to come back the same night. I had a book, and I was on the plane, and we had taken off, and we had 40 minutes before we were going to land. And was I reading my book? Answer the question. No. Was I reading my book? Sorry. Nope. No, I was not. You know what I was doing? What? Playing solitaire. Oh, yeah. On my phone. (laughs) Playing solitaire. Going through an emotional sense of, I can't win this game, I'm going to quit. <laughs> Two, I am so close to winning this game of solitaire. <laughs> if I just hit the back button enough, do not play the six of clubs, but save it for the six of spades that's coming up later, I think I can win this game. I had a moment of, what's the word, clairvoyant greatness. Something happened, and I said, I've got 40 minutes. I could be reading this book for 40 minutes. I could be having a moment of agency. Instead, I'm playing solitaire. <laughs> so that well, made, that, at least you realize it. Yeah, well, yeah. You know, that made me realize this other thing, and maybe you guys have this too. Do you guys have like, you know, you have like the New York Times or the Washington Post or the New Yorker or all these things on your phone? Oh, yeah. And okay. I lose oh. hours. And you check them continuously, right? Um, 17 times a day to HuffPo and New York Times. It's an addiction. I'm a mess. I love that you said 17 times because that's what I told myself. I check the Washington Post 17 times a day, and I don't read a fucking thing. (laughs) Wait, you're just a headline (laughs) grabber? I read the headline, and I might like (laughs) pop it on and read the first paragraph, but then I just keep going. And I will go from the very top to the very bottom of the Washington Post. And you do that 17 times a day, and you don't really land on something. But you just have this kind of like miasmic awareness of sort of like, (laughs) Jeff Blake said this and uh, something else. Uh, I have to, hold on, I need to Google miasmic. (laughs) (laughs) I think it means like a morass. I don't know if I'm using miasmic correctly. Can you do me a favor and use some software that will correct my vocabulary after we're done? O Magazine columnist, life coach extraordinaire, and New York Times bestselling author of a whole heap of books, Martha Beck, was my delightful partner in crime here once again last month. Our guest, Janine Roth, is the author of 10 books, including Women, Food, and God, and her latest, This Messy, Magnificent Life. I wanted to get down and dirty with these ladies about insane writing schedules. Martha, Janine, and I fall on all different ends of the time-deading spectrum. Or maybe we don't. Maybe we're more alike than I guessed. Well, jump in with me asking Janine how she steals time to write, basically. Are you a time thief? No, I'm actually not. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Even from the very beginning, when I started, when I realized 
I actually wanted to write more than I wanted to do anything else. I took a writing class, and within about oh, the first two weeks, I realized I didn't want to do anything else for the rest of my life but write, and it didn't matter <laughs> if I had to make. My job then was being a nanny in somebody's house, living in their basement, and also making avocado and cheese sandwiches every day at a health food store. And I thought, okay, I'll do this for the rest of my life if I have to write. So in terms of writing then, it was whenever I wasn't working. And I wrote, I'm not a night writer. Nighttime comes and the lights go out in my brain, in my body. It doesn't matter what I say or what I do. It just doesn't happen in the night. So it happens during the day. And if I have a really busy day, then I either don't write that day or I'm up so early in the morning and I love those morning hours before anybody else gets up that I write then. So what hours are you talking? Is it like 4, 5 a.m.? No, I'd say 5 a.m. to 8 a.m. if I'm doing something else that day. If I'm not and if it's a writing day for me, then I'll write starting at about 9.30 or 10 and go from 10 to 2 or 10 to 3. So what you're saying is it's pretty sane, like your food habits now. It's sane. (laughs) Damn it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's very sane because I don't like living in that hypervigilant, sympathetic nervous system mode which is the reason I didn't write this last book on a deadline or with a contract. I wanted to write when I wanted to write it and not be under that kind of anxiety-producing deadline. So it took me six years to write this book because of that. Mm. Martha, what about you? Were you ever a time (laughs) thief? Oh, I'm on the other end of the spectrum. I started writing... It's weird for me. I have this clock inside me. I'm very distractible, but like in school, when it was time to get started on something, something, like a clock would turn on inside me, and I'd know I have to do that now. And I had never, ever thought of being a writer, and I wanted to write a memoir about my experience with my son, who was prenatally diagnosed with Down syndrome, and a clock turned on inside me and said, write that book now. And at the time, I had three children under five. I was finishing my doctorate at Harvard while teaching as an assistant (laughs) professor. And I had severe fibromyalgia that made it impossible for me to use my hands most of the time. So it was incredibly slow and laborious. And I think I probably lost literal decades of sleep because I pulled all nighters <laughs> constantly. It wasn't a healthy thing. I wrote the last hundred pages of that book in one sitting, seventy two hours sitting. What? <laughs> and, oh god. Yeah, it's weird. I can't when the clock goes on, there's this yeah. weird compulsion and my hands would unfreeze when I was working on that book, but not when I was working on my dissertation. It was very, very strange. I've always okay. bizarre. Uh- Everything. Okay, so back to this kind of sneakiness. I'm imagining, Janine, you have this wonderful husband, Matt. Let's say you're working on a book and you and Matt are, you've got the weekend. And you're just hanging out. You don't really have any plans. Maybe he's watching some sports or something. Don't you just sit there and go, okay, okay, I got to get. Don't you ever wrestle with wanting to make Matt feel that he's getting your attention? But at the same time, sneaking off a little bit, you never deal with that, huh? (laughs) 
Well, that's a very big question you're asking, Linda. That goes into very, you know, not just writing, but if I am feeling utterly passionate about what I'm doing, whether it's writing or something else, then it becomes huge. And that's all I want to do. There's a feeling of can't wait to get back to it. But then I remember what Hemingway said that, At the end of every single day in which he stopped writing, he always left it with Mm -hmm. knowing where he was going to go the next day and really wanting to get back to it the next day. So I will try to resist the temptation of doing it all that day because I know that starting any day of writing is always a little difficult for me. It's just starting a new chapter is hard. Starting a new book is really hard. And even Mm -hmm. going in between the chapter, it takes me a little while to get into it. So it's good for me to stop the day before with this thrill of can't wait to get back into it. Martha Beck and I had the great good fortune to speak with Elizabeth Lesser, the New York Times bestselling memoirist of Broken Open, and most recently of Marrow, Love, Loss, and What Matters Most. When she was on book tour and came on, she talked with us about how she answers the call of the muse and what it feels like to release a book out into the world. I imagine both of you being authors know this feeling after you've finished a book and then it's been published and it's out there. It's an odd kind of combination of both a sense of pride of accomplishment because it's so hard to write a book and it's especially hard to write a memoir and to reveal so much of yourself, both your dirty laundry and your glory. So there's a sense of like pride and accomplishment, but there's also kind of a sense of well, you know, you want it to do well and you want people to like it, but that's not really the point of writing a book. The point is to, like, answer the muse and get it out there. So I never know how to feel at this stage. It's out there. It has a life of its own. I actually relate to all of my books as, like, people who are out there in the world. They're not me anymore. So I feel both proud but also what's next, you know, like the writing muse sits on the shoulder and and you think, really, already? I have to do this again already? (laughs) But there it is, because I've let that one go into the world. And I hope she touches people and helps people, but she's not mine anymore. Here are a few muse conversations. We have Gabby Bernstein on how to get invisible doors to open for you. And then Charles Saylor, the New York Times bestselling novelist of The Second Son, which sold 6 million copies. He and I talk with Rob Bell about working your material while being a channel for the divine. I believe that when you get genuinely grounded and aligned with the message that you're here to express, then invisible doors will open for you. I also believe that when you believe it, you will see it. So if you have a vision of seeing that book on the shelf in a bookstore or seeing it up on Amazon or seeing number one New York Times bestseller next to that book or sitting next to Oprah, whatever your vision is, allow yourself to assume the energy of what that feels like to live that experience. And when we begin to 
dwell in the energy of what it feels like to embody the experiences that we desire, they become our experience in the moment. We start to live it in the moment, even though it's not fully formed yet. And it's the experience of being in that joy and elation and excitement and enthusiasm around that desire that allows the desire to catch up with our dreams. So that's how I believe God is our publicist, because when we believe it, God takes over. So I want to talk about this idea of the muse. Knowing Chuck as long as I've known him, basically my whole life, in my opinion, he channeled a great portion of the second son. Mm -hmm. And my question to you is, Rob, when I read your books, it feels to me like otherworldly writings. I'm so mesmerized by your work, as so many people are. Do you ever feel that you're a channel? Yes. Well, it's interesting when Chuck was talking about Job and how a random verse in Job somehow unlocked something in him that led to this beautiful story. That's a very straightforward, honest explanation. And it also has like 5,000 miles of mystery built into it. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it's actually what happened. And yet I have a hundred more questions now. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. where does that sort of inspiration in the narrative and then 923? And I would say I can resonate with that. There are straightforward answers to why you made what you made and wrote what you wrote and we're feeling what you're feeling. But baked into them are, I don't know. I just followed it where it took me. Yeah. I pursued a line of inquiry. I wrote the next sentence and then the next sentence came. Mm-hmm. And I studied and I worked hard and I was disciplined and I did research. I also have no idea where it came from. You know what I mean? So it sounds um, a little bit like our friend Liz Gilbert talks about following your curiosity. Yeah, you're like putting in your hours, but you're also aware that you are opening yourself to great mysteries of how things get made. Uh-huh. There's this Latin phrase, ex nihilo, out of nothing. But there's this nature of creativity. It, comes out of nothing. Jerry Seinfeld was asked where his jokes come from. There's this great line where he says, I have no idea. I literally have no idea. I just wrote a kid story called A Goat for a Boat and read it to my daughter's class and then read it on the last episode of my podcast. I have no, Ron and Don and one has a goat and one has a boat and this girl <laughs> so named funny. Eileen V shows up with a vat full of chili that was made by her brother Willie so it's really chili. <laughs> That is just completely <laughs> ridiculous and absurd, and I have no explanation other than, for some reason, I came up with a story about a guy named Ron who has a boat and a guy named Don who has a goat. But you know what's <laughs> interesting to me about this conversation right now is I wrote a question for you this morning about Jerry Seinfeld, because wow. when I was prepping for this, I saw in my mind's eye Jerry and his work ethic of going to comedy. Absolutely places, right, every single night, and working jokes for years sometimes before he ever spoke them out loud in a bigger venue. He would just work the jokes and work the jokes. And that is so not unlike you. You were out doing state fairs and little tiny rooms all over the country working your material, not unlike a comedian. Absolutely. And I have a new two-hour one-man show that I'm going to take around the world next year for like all of 2018. And I was just, it's all coming together. And it's all these stories that I've never told. It's like two hours connected with something that this scholar said in the 1800s, connected with a Hebrew poem, connected with something that happened to me in 
1999. It's just the weirdest, well, it's like all my stuff. It's just a weird mishmash of stuff. But the how these stories are all talking to each other and how it has a central theme and how it's all talking to itself and how it's forming itself into this next tour. And it's like lots of work. And it's also, I'm like watching it out of body. Wow, look at this. Look where this is coming. Interest. Oh, you're right. That could go after that. And if I finished with that and then alluded to that, oh, it's, yeah, that's the juice. That's the great joy of it. I want to talk about support, both not getting it and getting lots of it, naysayers and cheerleaders. We'll speak with Dean Kuntz on butting heads with his obnoxious publisher, Glennon Doyle on who believed in her, and Van Jones about the kind of support you need to rally for yourself so that you can get your work done and out into the world when otherwise it just would not happen. I've told this story or written about it, but not often. When I was at Putnam, the woman who ran Putnam's was very canny, very business sharp, had a lot of success, but her success was always the writer wrote the same kind of book every time, which I've never done. And so we were butting heads a lot. And finally, I had a book breakthrough, a paperback bestseller, sold a million copies from her paperback arm. She ran the hardcover arm, but she employed the paperback people. So she didn't like the book, but they thought it was going to be a paperback bestseller. They were right. So she told me, now you're a paperback bestseller, but you'll never be a hardcover bestseller because you don't write the kind of books that can get to the top of the hardcover list. Your vocabulary is too big. This is this, blah, blah, blah. And finally, by just threatening to go to another house, I finally was able to get some better print runs. So we got onto the bestseller list and hardcover a couple of times. And after we'd been on a couple of times, she called me one day because you learn these things ahead of time. She called me and says, I've got great news for you. Your new book is going to debut at number one on the New York Times. Before I could cheer, before I could say anything, she said, but I have to tell you, this is a fluke. It will never happen to you again. (laughs) (laughs) And She just had had to be right. (laughs) We had four more number ones in a row. And every single time she told me it would never happen again. And I changed publishers. So it's things like this that it's what Bob said about people becoming discouraged. Women, men do become discouraged too. It's when they hit this kind of thing that they just want to melt away. Uh, and you can't because there's more naysayers in the world than there are people to cheer you along. Glennon, who believed in your writing? Yeah, well, <laughs> I've actually never told this story before, but so when, I don't know, what was it, like 10 years ago, my sister and I, you know, my sister who's been my life partner since she was born, she, we have both in transition times, kind of weird times, and she decided to, she was a corporate lawyer, she decided to leave her corporate job and to join the International Justice Mission and to go to Rwanda to help fight child sex trafficking and child slavery. and. I was freaking out because she was leaving me and because that sounded really scary <laughs> to me. <laughs> and, and so she came to my house one day before she was leaving and I'd never I tried to live without her. And she had a laptop and this letter and it's in front of me. It's always in front of me. It's right here. And it's 
It just starts with God has gifted you with a passion that's contagious and a voice that reaches into places in people's hearts that have never heard. God's put on your heart a desire to write. And then it goes on and on. And it ends with, I will joyfully and prayerfully await the magic that you and God come up with. It will be a treasure. And this is before I'd ever written the word. And she left and said, I'm going to go do my work in Rwanda. And the way you're going to make it through is you're going to sit your butt down in your chair and you're going to do the work that God has for you. Oh my God. Um, and that's what she did. She went away for a year and I stayed and started the blog. And then she came back and we kind of joined together my passion for writing and her passion for service. And that's how all of Together Rising started. And now we're all over the world doing the kind of work that she wants to do while I do the kind of work I want to do. So, wow. yeah, it was my sister. I got a lot of help. I got a lot of support. I also work for an organization called the Dream Corps. Yeah. Uh, even though I'm a, volu- I'm a volunteer at the Dream Corps, I'm practically more than a full-time volunteer there. And so I get some help from there. So I want to tell people, there's a mythology out there that you yourself somehow are supposed to solely and individually go into a basement and create all this stuff on your own. Mm-hmm. And if you can't, it's because you suck. And you just need to suck less and be... You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really destructive because it's a team sport. Even writing a book is a yep. team sport. You need help. You need support. You need... You know, I've sometimes employed ghostwriters on different parts of things because I know what I want to say, but I don't have the time to do the research. And because I'm a person who's in the community, I have people sometimes step up and try and help me do different things. You want to think about it, all this stuff, as a community effort that you're leading, that you have the main responsibility for, but you're trying to consolidate community wisdom. When the book is published, to get the book bought and read by anybody, you're going to have to engage your friends and allies anyway. It's not just you by yourself. And I really want writers to give themselves a permission to build a support team for themselves. It's okay if you need a check-in partner beyond your editor before you even get an editor. It's okay to be a part of a group. Don't move at the slow pace of the group. Go as fast as you can. But I put that out there just because I do think that when people, they imagine, you know, Tony Morrison's like somehow sequestered in a basement somewhere for 20 years. <laughs> you know, she's a social person. She knows a lot of people. She gets out a lot and it helps her work. Speaking of support, literary agent Laura York at the Carol Mann Agency in New York was a longtime editor at Simon & Schuster and also Putnam and Reagan Books and has sold a bunch of books for my Carmel retreat writers over the years. I don't know if it's because we share a birthday or what, but Laura and I have a kind of shorthand sixth sense about the writers we love. In this section, Danielle and I speak with her about one of our beautiful writers group members at the time, the fantastic Steph Jagger, and the auction Laura initiated to sell Steph's memoir, Unbound, a story of snow and self-discovery to HarperCollins. Laura, if you're doing the auction by email, we should explain that you've preceded that Many times with in-person meetings. Oh, yeah. Our member, Steph Jagger, who I just got to hang out with in San Diego. Man, is she funny as hell. I mean, I knew she was funny. Oh, my God. God, it was so great spending the afternoon with her. She is hilarious. So you all had gone through three or four in-person meetings before that auction ever started. And you actually kind of, oh, actually, it was preempted, right? You knew. Yes. 
verbally somebody in one of those meetings gave you the awareness that they were going to try to preempt it and take it off the table. Is that the case? Yes. No, I'll tell you a little bit about the auction situation. When you have meetings, the book often goes to auction, which is what you want. And you don't have meetings with publishers unless it's going to be a big book, unless it's going to be, you know, probably a six-figure book. And Steph's book was very, 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 very much a six-figure book. And, in fact, somebody responded to it so quickly from when I sent it that we initially had nine meetings because, again, publishers scramble. So when I send out an email saying, I've got serious interest in this, do you want a meeting? A lot of people said, oh, my God, yes. Before they'd had a chance, the editors, to bring the meeting, the book, to their editorial board, okay, the proposal, which is their publisher, their director of sales, their director of publicity, other editors, and all those people weigh in on whether or not the imprint should go ahead and make an offer on the book. Unfortunately, it's not just up to the one editor who may love it because if the publisher suits it down or the director of sales, there's nothing that the editor can do. So in this case, we started out with nine meetings. And when the editors went to their editorial boards, that came down to, I think, five meetings. And we went around, and I, from the get-go, knew who I thought should publish this book. And I am very good, for some weird reason, of knowing the amount that the book should be preempted for. And I think that's probably from all of my years as being an editor. So it happens, like in the last three books of this nature that I've had, I knew the number. Like they offer, I was like, yeah, that's the number, okay. And then I will tell my client, the writer, the author, I think you should do this. So in Steph's case, we went to the meeting and I said, I am going to look at you with a certain look saying, okay, I'm going to talk to her about a preempt, but I'm going to look at you and you look at me back if you agree. (laughs) And in this case, Steph did. And so after the meeting, uh, you know, again, it's a relationship business and I love this publisher. I've known her for a long time. I just said, Karen, just, you know, preempt. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to go talk to Jonathan, who's the publisher of HarperCollins right now. I said, Uh good, okay. And she called me back later that day with the exact number I was thinking of, and we closed the deal. And it was a nice number. It was rare and a nice number. Yes, very rare number, very nice. Mm. You have to really believe in the book that you are publishing as an editor. And that, I think, has gotten even more clear to editors today. And when I say really believe in, it's not just the message, but it's the writing. Because even today, when I'm on the other side of the fence, I mean, I'm selling something now, and it's an unbelievably gripping story. Narrative nonfiction, memoir. But even the people who are going, wow, this is just an unbelievable story, I've had a few people say, but the writing just didn't pull it in for me, and therefore they're passing on it because they know that if the writing doesn't do it for them, it's not going to do it when they go to that editorial board I was talking about, and it's not going to make it. Time. It is a huge topic, and we're about to hear from Gabby Bernstein on a miraculous way that we can all expand time in our favor. Then we will talk with Maria Shriver on respecting time and timing even when it seems really hard to do so. Healing can occur around time through healing judgment. Of course, I love how you talk about how meditation gives 
you more time. And I'm wondering if it's the same way. As you heal your judgment, do you get more time? Absolutely. So think about how much time you waste when you're sitting around judging. <laughs> you're wasting. <laughs> That's funny and so obvious. <laughs> right? You're lowering your energy sure, so you're sure. losing time. You're creating dramas so that you're losing time. I mean, how many hours are you going to talk about this BS thing that you're judging, right? Sure. Then you're judging yourself so you're slowing your momentum down. And all of it really is slowing down your momentum energetically. So the way that we speed up is when we're inspired. So we create, we expand time when we're in spirit, when we're inspired. When we're judging, we block our connection to spirit and inspiration. And so therefore we slow down the time that we have. Certain things have timing. There is timing for all of these things in life that you write this kind of book now and you write a different book later. You give this kind of speech now, you do this interview now, but later you do something else. And it's allowing people their timing, respecting their timing, respecting your own timing, and to just keep trying, which brings me back to what Lisa was saying. Just keep trying. Keep trying to get it right. Keep trying to put out into the world good work. That's what I say to my kids all the time. She's like, my daughter, like, I didn't get this, I didn't get that. I said, that's okay, just keep trying. Just keep trying. Look at mommy. I'm 62 and I get turned down all the time, but I just keep trying. <laughs> we just keep going. And that's it. That's it. We're all here for a minute. Yeah, for the a goal minute. is to live, as I said, a meaningful life, to have the time to do that. We're blessed. And uh, just to keep trying until you can't try anymore. On this topic of time, I want to share an excerpt about prioritizing time so you can fulfill the reason you were born, your destiny. This conversation is near and dear to me because it's with one of my favorite writers and guest co-hosts, the best-selling memoirist and novelist Danny Shapiro. We're talking here with her agent, Jennifer Rudolph Walsh, the head of Worldwide Literary at William Morris Endeavor. Talk about destiny. Jennifer's clients, they're writers like Oprah and Brene Brown and Sheryl Sandberg, all who embody, like their agent, a contagious sense of liberation and purpose. The truth is that everybody that has breath has a purpose. And a purpose, you know, it's like Mark Twain said, the two best days of your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. And (laughs) I love that. I just love that because purpose is not being a mother. It's not being a friend. It's not being the best singer or writer or a doctor or a teacher. It's the reason you're on this earth. And I really believe that people think of purpose as something that other people have or something that you'll get Mm -hmm. to in retirement. And Mm -hmm. the truth of the matter is that when you actually sort of uncover your purpose and shift your life to prioritize the things that serve that purpose, everything changes. And time Mm -hmm. almost Mm -hmm. magically kind of opens up and slows down. You find pockets Mm -hmm. of time everywhere that you weren't expecting. Mm -hmm. Completely. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Yeah, it reminds me of that. One of my favorite quotes, I tell my students this all the time, even though the source is the not particularly literary Dolly Parton, which is, I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but it's basically figure out who you are and then do that on purpose. Yeah. Um, Which is like a shift shift in the word purpose, but you know, that whole idea of understand what are you here for? What doors are swinging open and why? And what are you noticing? What are you witnessing and why? And I really think to go back to you turning 50, Jennifer, I think For some women, it's the 40s. For some women, it's the 50s. It's not usually much earlier than that, and sometimes it's later than that. But that sense of understanding, oh, this is it. 
and then doing that. Totally. And And it started in my 40s for sure. But I feel like the added piece of liberation to me was this like zero fucks given. Like I had to, you know, on one hand, care so passionately, yes, but on yes. the other hand, stop caring about all the nonsense and the noise and the things that I can't control. So that was a process for me. These days, our heroes often fall from grace. It's hard to know who is a good guy and who isn't. I've been blessed to be close to part of the Tom Hanks family for several decades now, and will tell you that Tom is as beloved in his inner circle as he is in the greater world. What you see is truly what you get, which I think will make even more sense once you hear him answer the following question. As I look at your life, both personally and professionally, I see a strong thread of courage. In your roles, you always seem to play these courageous men who are somehow isolated, isolated in a rocket ship, isolated on an island, isolated in illness or disability, and they got to rise up. They got to rise up and they got to lead. And in your personal life, I know you did do the same. You were Rita's rock during her breast cancer ordeal. You've harnessed courage to sit in front of the blank page as an author. So, so my question, here's my question, is what do you think it is about you that's just drawn to tackling big shit. And how do you keep stepping into that expansion? Is it innate or do you got to psych yourself up? Does anybody know this kind of stuff about themselves? I, uh, therapy 101. Baby. I guess that's what it is. Yeah. Great. Yeah, I don't, not it. even 101. Therapy 50. Roll with it. You're an one, you know, used to this. I can, no, I can, I can, um, Look, I think I was very lucky in my youth when I was growing up, despite the fact of, you know, constant confusion and uh, <laughs> a lot of moving around. And uh, where, where are we going now? I was the one in the family pod that kind of viewed it as a big adventure, as a plus, despite the fact that everybody else in the car seems to be in a very bad mood. Uh, I'm thrilled. Uh, hey, uh, look at the new neighborhood. That, I think, that I did not share with my siblings. They viewed it all differently, as is the case. Every family goes through all of its stuff. Uh, yeah, divorce when you're a kid is tough. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think everybody who raised me or had some point in me uh, were kind, if not perhaps preoccupied with uh, a lot of misery in their lives and uh, or a lot of confusion in their own lives. I will tell you, I actually had very, very, very early training that I will say, because you got it out of me, savage V-girls and Valencia and Vancouver, is that this is what I started doing when I was about seven years old. I started traveling from one parent's house to the other parent's house on a Greyhound bus. There were three of us on that bus, my sister and my brother and me. There's three of us. There is no three abreast seatings in a Greyhound bus. So I was always either in a seat by myself or in a seat next to some stranger. For three and a half hours, four and a half hours. And we probably did that for every vacation. We did it four times a year. So that's eight times a year I'm on a Greyhound bus, usually at night, you know, after school. I isolated myself in looking out the window and the lights going by or the fields going by or the rhythm of the uh, telephone poles or whatever. And I devolved into, I told myself stories. I just let an imagination Mm. go wild. 
And there's types of stories. You know, when you're young, you dream about being a superhero or something like that. But then as you get a little bit older, you start taking songs that you've heard that told stories and you delve into them or things that you are reading. So the characters that you're describing in some of the movies I've made, they do go back to that isolation um, of being alone and making do. Uh, Look, I can tell you, I don't think I've ever been bored being alone. I've been lonely sometimes, but there's a difference between loneliness and solitude. And when you're a relatively healthy human being, solitude is really great for you. And so the idea of sitting down and having these itches that need to be scratched or a slight, you know, ember burning in the belly that turns into a bit of a fire in the way of a story. I've had really good preparation for that based on this luck of the draw, this fabulous thing that happened, this great, great bit of good fortune in the fact that my parents grew to hate each other. We are on the home stretch here, and I want to cover two final topics, brain health, which what could be more important for a writer, and activism. Lisa Gibbons and Maria Shriver have both lost parents to Alzheimer's and are tireless advocates for eradicating this devastating disease. I asked them what we can do to keep our own brains in tip-top shape, and this is a bit of what we talked about. Maria's list was almost a complete one in terms of, you know, I have to smile because we used to not know about medium-chain triglycerides and adding that to things. And I whip it up now in my coffee every day and the supplements that I take on a daily basis, I would have rolled my eyes even five years ago thinking that I take that many things. But now we have studies to look at the efficacy of these things. And we know that in autopsy, Alzheimer's brains, for example, we've known for a while now that they're deplete in D and they're deplete in B12 and things like that, that mainstream communities now are saying these are the kinds of supplements that people are recommending. And brain games, it's now not just, oh, crossword puzzles. Now they're looking at particular games that are showing protective benefits for brain health. So yes, and meditation, things that are not just, why don't you try it, but you really should be if you're serious about being at risk. And as Maria always says, if you have a brain, you're at risk for Alzheimer's, whether you have a family history or not, then we should all act as if we're at risk because we really are. But I think that to borrow tomorrow's trouble today is kind of fruitless, but to be naive is no way to live your life. So I always tell my kids to to be present, to be involved in their own lives and in changing the potential for the future, to make their wishes known, to be very aware of my wishes. I think those things are urgent. And to be aware that science is evolving Every day, you can make yourself insane. So to people yeah. going through at night, you know, searching the internet, and kids are always laughing, saying, "Oh, it's WebLG again." There she goes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so where can our listeners get a list of the best supplements? Is there an easy book or something that you recommend so that they can learn more about MCT oil and which vitamins are good? Well, I would say first of all that they should talk to their doctor. Okay. Um, that's the most important thing. If they're 60 or so and above, they should meet a neurologist. They should talk about their cognitive health, maybe do a cognitive baseline test. Supplements are good for certain people, not for others. So it's all very personalized. So I wouldn't say to somebody, go and take these supplements because I don't know their medical situation. So I would just say to check with your doctor. There are a lot of books out there now that talk about a lot of these supplements and talk about Alzheimer's prevention and the end of Alzheimer's and 
You are your own healing self. There's a lot of information out there, but if you have a doctor that you trust, I would start with that and knowing your own you know, tests of your own blood, etc. Activism, the bigger picture, the spiritual why. Glennon Doyle and I chat with Van Jones about his higher vision for why he does certain things the way he does on the road and in print. I started out, I went to law school, and I got out and I worked on police misconduct and juvenile violence and youth organizing for a long time in the Bay Area before I burned out on all the funerals and coalition meetings that would go crazy and bad outcomes on votes, and I just couldn't do the urban frontline activist thing anymore after about a decade or so. And I started family and started working on environmental stuff, wound up in the White House for about six months, and then... My left-wing path caught up to me, and I decided it was better to quit and go teach for a while than to continue to be pummeled by Fox News, and then found a place for myself in television. And along the way, I think what my through line has been, I've always been trying to figure out some way to deal with what I call like the least of these, the people who are left out, locked out, left behind, whether it's African-Americans or LGBTQ or folks who live in Appalachia or whatever. and trying to figure out a way to be a good voice, a good advocate, a good champion for causes and constituencies that, frankly, most people don't care a ton about. That's been the big calling. I've tried to use public speaking. I've tried to use television. I've tried to use writing for that purpose. And inside of that, you can make a ton of mistakes. I mean, early on, it's just about being so self-righteous and being so didactic and reductive that the only people who agree with you are like your roommate, your ex-girlfriend and everybody else is like, get this person away from me because it's just too shrill and too extreme and too over the top. With my new book, I really feel like I've come full circle because you start off as a bomb thrower in your 20s and by the time you get to your late 40s where I am now, you wind up realizing the world needs bridge builders too. Yeah. And sometimes the best bridge builders are the people who used to be the bomb throwers, and that's kind of me. You know, I used to be the the loudest guy in the room, the most belligerent, trying to make my points stick up for my cause. And now I've gotten to a place where I realize that we just can't get all the way to where we want to get to as a society just bashing the hell out of each other all day. That's fine. Can we just do that from like 9 a.m. to noon and get out of our system? And then from like noon to five, can we try to find some stuff we could work on together? That's really where I am now. And the book is really, hopefully people are sick of the crazy now. If people had enough of crazy and want to have some more sane conversation. Yeah. Yeah, And sometimes when I'm listening to you, I hear always, actually, I hear this faith, like I'm a person that sees the world through faith lens also. So I kind of hear that language underneath some of your words which I love so, you know, just the least of these and the way that you speak and the way that you do your work in the world. So in terms of speaking, my motto is faith and sweat. So before an event, I just sweat like hell and prepare till I can't prepare anymore. And then I get to the event and I tell myself, okay, the sweat part is done. So it's time for faith. And I literally say before I go on stage, okay, God, I showed up your turn, like just total surrender. Do you have any kind of prayer or ritual that you do that helps you kind of keep showing up and be brave? Yeah, especially before public speaking. My view on on that is that if I were to steal just for, you know, the heck of it, if I were to steal your purse and throw it in a river, uh, you'd be very mad 
uh, but you could get another purse. If I were to take your laptop and throw it off the roof and shatter it to a million pieces, you'd be very mad you'd get another laptop. If you come to hear me talk and, you know, I talk for an hour and I don't say anything of any use, I don't take any risks, I just bang through my same old, same old, and, you know, you could have seen the whole thing on YouTube and it would have made the same no difference to you. I can never give you that hour back. Mm. If I waste your time, that is the one thing that I can never, ever, no matter what I do, repay you for or restore to you. And so before I go talk, I take it very seriously. As a practice, I think about how much effort every single person went through in that audience just to get there. Yeah. The child care, yeah. the public transportation, the parking, whatever it is. I try and think about all the things in their life that may be causing them to be distressed or sad or worried. And I try to think, what do they need? What do people really need right now? And then I think about the people who can't come to the venue because they're in prison or because they're just too poor or life is too hard for them. What would they want to be said to the people who at least have enough privilege and opportunity to show up for a lecture? And what I find is when I'm focused on what do the people in front of me need and what do the people who aren't there need, I just disappear. I'm no longer mm-hmm. this person worrying about how I look and what I sound like, and I can just be a good channel. So I, whenever I give a bad speech, it's because I skip one of those two steps. I forgot to connect to the audience or I forgot to connect to the constituency. When Gabrielle Bernstein and I spoke in December of last year, major wildfires were raging all over Southern California, and I was angry and I was sad at the way our government was handling environmental issues. Gabby advises us to speak kindly, and I wanted to know how in this situation. How was I supposed to do that? Well, let's just be clear. There's a big difference between discernment and judgment. So when we can look at a situation like what's happening globally, or politically, or what's happening with the EPA, or what's happening in the world in general. Yeah. When we look around and we see these major injustices, the threat of atomic bombs, right? Yeah. We have to get real. Okay, we do not just sit around and go off into the woods and hide. This is not what we do. But we have to do our work on our experience of it first, because here's the deal. Take that rage and use that rage, but it has to be cleaned up before it's projected out. Because what happens ultimately, if we start just spewing and fighting and yelling, that the energy behind that, it does not embody the momentum that we need in order to create the movements that we have to create today. And so it's when mindful, calm, centered, healthy people come together Mm -hmm. that real change occurs. Now, we think really in these times, the person that we have to channel the most is Martin Luther King. Yeah. This is not a man who created a movement around rage and anger. He's a man that created a movement around peaceful protest. Oh, so nice. Okay. Extremely clearly the difference. Okay. So uh, really channel your Gandhi, channel your Martin Luther King, channel your Aung San Suu Kyi, channel the people who have lived through the greatest injustices and call on that energy so that you can say, you know, what would Martin Luther King do? And there was no silence there. That was not a movement based on silence. But here, let me try to type this something. Can you hear that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. I'm on a podcast. (laughs) 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. I still feel like the luckiest girl at the party. You may have noticed that I haven't partnered with commercial sponsors, but I do quickie commercials for my own stuff like this one. I am willing to bet that you have a book inside of you that has been whispering, possibly even yelling at you to give it the time it needs. But life, kids, the day job, money, it all keeps interfering. I get it. So do the hundreds of writers I've worked with who tell me that the five days they gave themselves, that they invested in themselves in Carmel were some of the best days, if not the best days of their creative lives. You can find all sorts of celebrity and first-time writer testimonials over on bookmama.com. That said, this year, my own books, my own completion of my books and book deals are my priority. So I've only got one more retreat for the year with open spots, and that's in September at the gorgeous La Playa Hotel. I would love to talk with you about joining us. Men are welcome. Another powerful way I can support you in completing your book is to help you better structure your time. Become a time bender. We have had such a stunning reaction from last week's inaugural time debt course that Bronwyn, who's my co-author and co-host for the eight-week program, we have decided to open enrollment back up. Our participants are killing it with breakthroughs in their schedules and peace of mind and manifestation levels already. And we're just getting started. Everything is recorded. You can get all caught up in your own time and join us soon. So timedebt.com. I swear you haven't seen anything like this course. Bronwyn's put together an incredible slideshow and downloads for each week. She's got 175 TED Talks under her belt for her clients. So the quality you will see in this course is really unparalleled. Okay, that's it for now. If you're able to leave us a quickie love review, five stars on iTunes, that would be amazing. Regardless, we will see you next month. Right on. Right on.